Hi, welcome to the Green Minds Podcast. My name is Andreas and I'm your host today. This is my very first podcast and I will be talking with the co-founder of an Indonesian company called Surya, X-U-R-Y-A. As you will hear later, Surya's business model is called Solar Power Rental. What it means is that Surya will install rooftop solar panels for the companies at no cost at all. Surya's revenue model is from the sharing of the company's cost saving due to lower electricity costs. Why the companies have lower electric costs, you ask? Because it will use the solar-generated electricity from the solar panels to partially replace the electricity consumption generated by the utility company. Now, for your background information, Indonesia is a tropical country, which means we have sunlight for around 12 hours a day all year long. So, one would think that solar power should be a natural thing to implement in this country. Now, in this podcast, you will also hear about a company called PLN, which stands for Perusahaan Listrik Negara. A bit of background, PLN is an Indonesian state-owned company that basically controls the electrical power generation and distribution in the country. I think this context is important to understand the renewable energy business in Indonesia. And now, on to the podcast. For my guest today, I have Eka Himawan, the co-founder and managing director of Surya, an Indonesian renewable energy startup. Eka, welcome to the Green Minds podcast. Let's first start with the basic. Can you describe Surya's business model, Ka? Yeah, thank you very much, Andrea. We're basically a company that, long story short, is essentially we do what we call a solar lease. So maybe for those of you who don't know what solar lease is, essentially we go to customers, mostly commercial and industrial. That's why we call ourselves CMI. And we will tell them like, hey, you want to install solar on your rooftops. It will cost you this much to invest. But if you would rather not pep up the capital yourself, why don't you sign up to this long-term contract with us? We invest on your behalf. You just pay us on the electricity that's cheaper than whatever you're currently paying. So essentially, they get savings without any investment. So you actually absorb all the capital expenditure. So you install that in the client side. Is that what you're doing? Yes, correct. So basically, we install it on the client side at our expense. All expenses taken care of and all licenses taken care of. And basically, all they have to do is receive the power. And they just pay us for the power that's produced. So essentially, we, we're taking away the risk because I feel a lot of times that customers are sort of like concerned about whether or not, you know, a, a system designed for a thousand kilowatt hours can actually produce a thousand kilowatt hours, right? What if it only produces 800, right? So we absorb that risk on their behalf, essentially. Okay. And what you install is the solar panel on the client's premises and the, in the location, correct? Yeah. And you mentioned that you would call a CMI. What, what, what does CMI stand for? CMI, commercial and industrial. So I commercial see. means shopping malls, industrial means factories. Can you give us one example of implementation of your existing client, who this client is in terms of the sector, what you did to them? I think that would be useful for us to understand that better. Yeah. So basically my clients would be the likes of any factories that have any you know, consumption of electricity. So uh, we have consumer good companies like Unilever. So maybe just to give you some examples, for example, Unicharm, right? I mean, they're, they're well known for their product, you know, sanitary pads, as well as diapers. For those of you who doesn't know, that's a Japanese brand. They're basically trying to go net zero by 2030. And obviously it, there's not many choices for you to go renewable and net zero in Indonesia, especially because you're using power from the national electricity grid company. So one of the easiest ways for them to do it is we would install solar on their rooftops. I would replace maybe, let's say, 15-20% of their electricity. And based on the reduction, I would charge them a fee for the reduction that we actually generated to them. So, I mean, just, just to give you some idea, for example, let's just say electricity is about 10 cents per kilowatt hour. And then you are using about 1,000 kilowatt hours per year. You'd be paying $10,000, right? But once we invest, let's just say we replace about 20% of that. So you end up paying only 800 kilowatt hours at 10 cents still to the you know utility company. But that 200 kilowatt hours that I managed to save on their behalf, I will charge them a rate that's lower than the tariff. So it could be... For example, eight cents, right? So I, I would charge them eight cents on instead of 10 cents and they would pay me eight cents on the 200 kilowatt hours. So that's essentially the savings that they're getting. Great. 
So let's go back to when you started this business. I believe Surya was started in around 2017 or 18, yeah? So let's go back to that time. Talk to us about your thinking process when you started, how you came up with this idea and how you assess the market opportunities for this model, again. Yeah. So actually, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll just take a little bit step back because the, the idea of the company actually really started back in 2007 when I first graduated. To be honest with you. Sounds good. Yeah. So, I mean, I graduated as an electrical engineer, but actually my co-founder is, he's actually a PhD in solar. So anyways, 2007, I got into the business of, you know, investing. So I was in a hedge fund, actually investing in solar and renewable. So for those of you who may have understood, there was a big solar boom in 2007. That was actually when China first started to really expand their solar supply and Germany and U.S. were really plowing in lots of subsidies to sort of prop up a market that wouldn't have happened. So we all have to be thankful for that period of time because if not for that, we won't have today. Anyway, long story short, for me and my co-founders, I was investing in solar. She was actually researching solar. Both of us were in Colorado. I was investing. He was researching. Anyway, we, we really liked the idea. And, you know, obviously coming from Indonesia, the thing we thought about is like solar, sun, and the equator. It's like, that should be match made in heaven, right? So you now we thought, oh, this, this should be very interesting. But obviously, I think we all know it's expensive at a point in time. Didn't really do much about it. Went back to Indonesia. I did a bit of banking. Two years, I was in this bank called Barclays. It's UK bank. So doing a lot of fixed income assets. Did my own startup about 2012. It was actually an e-commerce company. Then about 2018 was when I was about to sell out from my old company. So I was about to exit my old company. I was sort of like wondering, what should I do next, right? And yeah, I mean, obviously, because we we had this old love for renewable, we thought to ourselves, maybe this could be interesting. So we were sort of like tried to work out the numbers and like, interestingly enough, it was Indonesia wasn't quite hot in terms of renewable yet at a point in time. I think it still is sort of like just an emerging thing today. Until today, I think they only have about 200 megawatts of solar cumulatively, which is very small in the whole region. I think if you're talking about like even the Philippines, they have like two, three gigawatts. Thailand have five gigawatts and then and like Vietnam even have like 18 gigawatts. So it's uh, yeah, 200 megawatts. It's, it's really nothing. But yeah, anyway, long story short about that, we thought there should be some, I mean, solar hasn't taken off yet in Indonesia, but the numbers just made sense. So we thought that we shouldn't be about the right time that we start something in solar. So yeah, that's sort of like how we came about <laughs> after 15 years of waiting, I guess. <laughs> Great. Yeah, I remember, you know, as I probably have mentioned before, I've been with IFC since 2009. And I remember the evolution of this solar renewable energy industry, right? I think back then it was still relatively new and obviously it was still more expensive about to what we have right now, right? So I think it's interesting to see also in 2017, I would think that in terms of the cost also, the solar panel, it did make a good business proposition, was it at that time? Yeah, correct. So basically what we're trying to figure out is the investment of solar versus, I guess, the power it will produce multiplied by what is the tariff of electricity will give us basically a yield of the assets, right? And I'm just trying to compare if the yield of the assets, if I try to, you know, basically finance it with debt, would it make sense or not, right? And I think 2018 was the first year it actually even made sense to sort of finance the savings with debt. Okay. Okay. I In see. Indonesia, at least. Yeah. <laughs> and I think to the listeners who probably are not very familiar with Indonesia, you mentioned that, you know, Solar should make sense, right? We are a tropical country. We have right, all year long. So what were the factors you think that make Indonesia has not caught up that solar energy is not as ubiquitous as one would expect in a tropical country like Indonesia? Okay. Yeah, well, yes. First thing first, the market here is heavily regulated, right? As maybe some of you have heard that we have the national electricity grid company called PLN which essentially monopolizes the power production and power sale within the country. Now, as part of the government's push to probably also win their votes, they have to subsidize the electricity tariffs. So they, they produce power, for example, at about 12 to 13 cents, but they sell the power in the, to the public maybe at about eight to nine cents, right? And, and so that has sort of created this sort of like weird scheme 
where the B2B solar weren't really taking off because B2B solar would have to compete against the subsidized tariff, which is, you know, maybe all the other markets would have sort of like succumbed to that pressure of the B2B solar while Indonesia hasn't yet. So Indonesia would have to sort of solely rely on the utility skills, which I think Indonesia didn't last year. So much coal. I guess we've sort of went the easy way and just dug up those coal first before they went to solar. I think that coupled with the fact that I think maybe the, the state electricity company is sort of a bit of a dinosaur, right? They, they, they're a bit slow to move and they're a bit too slow to realize how fast, you know, the renewable energy has, has come and, and how cheap solar has become. I still remember the conversations I'm having with 2018 with them and it's like, oh, isn't solar expensive? And I'm like, yes, it is expensive three, four years ago, but actually a lot of things has changed. But I think it's pretty hard for them to, to realize that. And, and I think that's part of the reason why we are trying to enter the, to the market to sort of like, in a way, rather than argue them, like try to show them in front of their face that, you know, solar is competitive and it doesn't need subsidies anymore. Okay. It's interesting in our class, we recently learned about the, the market values and the role also of the regulations or regulatory bodies in actually, or in this case, unfortunately, discouraging the, the renewable energy or energy transition. We'll talk about regulatory a bit more later, but now I want to still go back to, you know, your business now, yeah, going back to this 2018 when you started this. So I'm curious how at that time, how did you market this? Because I would think that this was a new idea for for Indonesia, right? For many companies. So how did you market this? Who were your initial target customers and how you approach and how you sold this idea or this service to these customers? Like, Well, to be honest with you, it was not easy. Like you said, 2018, when we first sort of started, there were only like what, 120 megawatts, I think at that point in time of cumulatively installed solar. And I think there's only one, the largest solar plant that's producing is about five megawatts in somewhere in Kupang. It was like a CSR project in a way by PLN. So, I mean, yes, like you said, it initially it was very difficult. I get a lot of funny questions like, oh, what if, you know, a cloud passes over, will, will my lights you know, go blinking, right? Because I didn't have enough power. And like, yeah, I'm, I'm sure somebody's figured it out in, in, the, in the West, right? Anyways, sort of to your question about how we sort of approach the customers. I, I think because most of the developed countries have sort of push this across. We thought that there should be two main potential for the customers. One of them will be the customers who are actually from the developed countries itself, or maybe even like local companies whose patriarchs or owners actually sort of studied in the US or Australia or developed countries. To my amazement, all of the multinational companies weren't actually open to this kind of ideas at a point in time. I think the reason being is that globally, they were still sort of like figuring that out. And I don't think they have trickled it down to sort of like all of their other geographies, right? Especially Indonesia being so far away probably from the headquarters. But I think I found better luck with those set of owners who actually went to developed countries to study and they are a bit more open about it. I remember very well, one of our very first few clients is actually Plaza Indonesia, which is the host to Grand Hyatt here in, in Jakarta, right at the heart of the city and it took me about a whole year to sort of convince them because the owners were sort of like, yeah, this is great. Let's do it. No money in, I get savings and I get to market and say that I'm green. I'm in, right? But the problem was actually the managers in the working level, they were actually very concerned about this. And because if something goes well, they probably won't get any credit for it. But if something goes wrong. They will be the one that gets screamed at, like, hey, what the hell did you do? And how can you have power outage? Such a high-end mall, right? And high-end hotel, actually. So, yeah, that was, that was actually our first success. We were able to sort of convince them. We had to go through three different layers of the company. But it turns out to be a very good investment up front because that marketing loan, that, that name, the Grand Hyatt name, sort of like helped us get the track record and then at least like the recognition that, you know, we are able to do it. How big of the capacity that your first customer, this Plaza Indonesia slash Grand Hyatt, that, that you installed there, Eka? Oh, it was very small. It was like 15 kilowatt peak, so 0.015 megawatts. So uh -huh, okay. Yeah, it's, it's, it's super tiny, but okay. it, was, it was very good in, in terms of name, but maybe not so great capacity. Okay. But I think it brings you, it opened the door, right, for you as a first case, and then you can bring it to other customers, I imagine, yeah? Yeah. 
Correct. I mean, it wasn't our very first customer. There, there, there are also other customers, but they're like more smaller shop houses and things like that. So we, we sort of started really small scale and then sort of gradually become larger and larger. Okay. But it's fair to say that Plaza Indonesia, which is one of the long established high-end shopping malls in Jakarta or in Indonesia, is the first big name that you have in your portfolio yeah, at that time. Yeah. 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 Okay. Correct. Great. I found it interesting you mentioned about, you know, the dynamics of approaching the multinational companies, but also the local companies in which the owner, founder or management would probably have in the sustainability, right? And from what you described, it seems that you were able to get the traction in the, in the local company for the reasons that you mentioned, the multinational, the headquarter may be too far from Jakarta. Which is interestingly is also in line with my experience. Like one of the last investments that I did with IFC before I moved here was with the Gunung Sewu group. Actually, as you know, is one of the largest conglomerates in Indonesia. And the founder, the chairman is also very progressive, I would say. You know, they have set up this net zero goal. They are very sustainable minded, which I think make the conversation easy, actually. All right. So I think. One of the key takeaways from me at that time, you really need to speak with the people who have this keen interest on the sustainability and you really need to talk with the kind of the decision maker in that company, right? Is that also in line with your experience so far? Yeah, pretty much. Exactly. I mean, we need to be speaking to the decision maker and hopefully the decision maker is actually, you know, in line with the thought of zero and sustainability. Okay. I want to zoom in a little bit more. You mentioned about the challenge or the pushback, right, from the management of this Plaza Indonesia or Grand Hyatt about their concern, which was fair enough. Like you said, if something went wrong, then that hat was on the line, right? So, yeah. so how did you that actually? How did you manage that, or how did you convince? How did it finally work out, if you will? Yeah, well, I guess maybe like any scientist would would say, <laughs> there's no better proof than actually doing a demo, right? So. So we actually had to arrange. So there were two major concerns at one time. First of all, they were really concerned about the glare because they didn't want the sunlight to sort of reflect off. And there's, you know, right next to Grand Hyatt is actually a very posh housing apartment called the Karaton, if you may know, where all the bosses of Indonesia probably lives. So they said that, oh, look, I don't want to have my bosses calling me up in the middle of the day to complain about the glare that they're getting. So we had to install the actual solar panels temporarily on the site for about a whole week or so to sort of, and then we tried to take the picture of out of every floor. So there was one of the tests that we did. The second test that they were really concerned about is the wind. So. They were so afraid that the wind load would sort of blow the panels away. <laughs> so yeah, we had a whole lot of studies and eventually we just, you know, went with this vendor that had the chemical anchor and to sort of install it on the, on the, so that it, you know, it doesn't get pulled off, <laughs> off the guard essentially. So yeah, there were, there were the two interesting okay. uh, things. That, that is very interesting. Yeah, I think I'm sure this kind of concern in terms of the look or the glaring, which can annoy people. It's, let's say, definitely less of a concern in manufacturing company, for instance, yeah? Yeah, yeah, correct, uh, correct. Yeah. I mean, yeah, because you probably have no high-rise buildings around yeah, yeah, factories yeah. as well, right? Yeah. Okay. Can you also talk a little bit, uh, it's a little bit more technical, I guess, you know, the concern about the sustainability in terms of the power supply, right? Given this solar, the sun obviously is not shining for 24 hours. So I'm not a technical person, but I'm also curious about this kind of power balancing or power availability for this solar panel, like Yeah. So you rightfully pointed it out. I think the biggest challenge right now about solar as an electricity source is that it's intermittent, right? So what it means is that it, it produces power and I guess whenever clouds passes over or whenever it's raining, you'll produce less power, right? And I, I guess fortunately for Indonesia, whenever you have clouds passing over, It'll be cooler and most of the electricity use is for cooling anyway. So I guess it sort of like works that way, but maybe not so much in, in, in the, you know, near the parts of the countries, right? So I think the, the typically how solar will work is it will start producing power when the sun rises, but it will gradually rise up to the peak of the day. And if there's cloud passing over, it will sort of like just go down and go up. But the good thing about, uh, about about the electricity is that it's almost instant, instantaneous in a way. 
So if you mix it with the grit, which is the PLN or whatever it is, the grit uh, that you're using, you could actually combine the power simultaneously without you knowing the difference. So usually what will happen is, for example, you're consuming 100 kilowatt uh, at that point in time and solar power is producing 80 kilowatts. You would take in 20 from the grid. But the moment cloud passes over and the production of solar power goes down from 80 to, for example, 30, you would immediately take in only 30 from the solar and you would take in 70 from the grid. And because the grid is sort of large, infinitely large in a way, in comparison to the solar that you have, it, right? It solves almost instantaneous. It's just like water flowing through and nobody would feel a difference. Okay. Okay. So it will balance it out instantaneously, right? You say, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Were there any, back then, were there any competitors or currently are there any competitors with the similar business model with Surya? Yeah, I guess when we first started out, I think we were probably the only ones doing the similar business model. But nowadays there are quite a few. There are quite a few that's sort of like coming in here. You know, there are multinational companies. There are also local conglomerates sort of like trying to build a business that's similar. Okay. And is this something that is also happening in other countries in Southeast Asia or in Asia? Yeah. Actually, the Indonesia is probably the last one to fall in a way. We, when I first started in 2018, we were the only player. But actually back in 2018, I actually partnered up with a player from Thailand. And I mean, I asked him like, oh, why are you interested in Indonesia? So his question to me is like, do you have any competitors? I said, no. Well, I have to leave competitors my home home ground. So that's actually the reason why I'm 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 looking for greener pastures elsewhere. So uh, I think that's actually the, the the nature of the business is you know solar has actually taken off pretty much everywhere across the world. So there are plenty of players actually in, in a lot of different countries. And Indonesia is sort of like I guess being the lucky one or the unlucky one with no players doing this, and we just okay. happen to be one of the first. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I, so just to clarify, so. Meaning that this model in which the companies would install this uh, solar panel without cost and then share the saving is not new. That it's it's also available in other countries like in Thailand, even back then, 2018, yeah, Kaya. Yeah, correct. Okay. And I mean, I think to be completely fair, I think most of us probably are sort of inspired by Elon Musk and Solar City, right? <laughs> so Solar City actually back started back in 2006. I think other than Solar City, there's actually another company that's also quite large called Sun Run. And there's, there's I mean, GE also was doing like this solar business back then as well. So, I mean, there are a fair bit of people who did that back in the US and then we sort of like took the inspiration from there in a way. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And where do you source the solar panel? Which country do you import this from? So basically we mostly just use what we call like tier one solar panels. So Bloomberg publishes that list of number one bankable panels. Usually there's like 20 of them. And it just so happens that maybe 18 out of the 20 Names on the list are Chinese for <laughs> solar panels. I, I guess thanks to the history of the 2007, right? So I think what happened back in 2007 was that the, the technology was really there, but there wasn't somebody trying to push the, push the manufacturing of it. I guess China took on the task. I guess obviously US and Germany just sort of like pushed on the subsidies and sort of like became the demand creators, right? Yes. And I think we also have learned in our course, China is, is a clear dominant global player also, right? In this, in this solar and actually in many other renewable energy, just because, you know, just like many other sectors, China obviously has the scale, the speed, the productivity to actually produce many things in such a, a huge scale. Now I want to talk about, you know, the electricity market and the energy regula regulatory framework in Indonesia. And as a background information for our listeners, you mentioned about this company called Perusahaan Listrik Negara or PLN, which is a state-owned company in Indonesia that basically controls the country's power generation and distribution. So you touch about the dynamics of this regulatory framework a little bit, but can you talk a little bit more about how the relationships, if you will, between the PL and, and the growth of the renewable energy companies like Surya, Eka. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, where should I start this? Maybe I'll just start explaining about how the electricity market works in Pre Indonesia, as well yeah. as, I guess, how they have been sort of like helping or not helping the industry. Yeah. I guess how the electricity market works in Indonesia is uh, you have the uh, Ministry of Energy and Mineral Resources. 
which would sort of the aspects of electricity and mining for that respect, right? Because they are heavily related at this point in time. And then you have PLN, which is the executor arm of the country, which would have the authority to provide power to any parts of the country. Unless if the PLN starts to say that, oh, I can't do this area because there's not enough capacity and I sort of give up, then they would sort of like give up on that area. And we call it like a wilaya usaha, which is essentially just means a bit to operate and sell power in that particular area. So we have uh, about 48 companies doing that. So these are typically private companies. So these 48 private companies will have their own authorities to sell power within those estates that they own. Typically, it's an industrial estate that they own that they tried to develop, but because PLN wasn't able to provide power on it, they would sort of give up their rights to monopolize the power. But having said that, out of the maybe 60 gigawatts of Indonesia, maybe PLN accounts for about 50 easily 15 gigawatts of that. So maybe the other 10 to 15 is sort of left to these uh, private companies. And then that's actually on the selling of power, right? On the other side, oh, sorry. Interrupt a little bit, Eka. So these 50, 48 private companies, they can set up their own power plant and they are free to use, they can use the coal, they can use renewable energy. It doesn't matter, right? As long as they can produce that. Okay. Use whatever power. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. And then go ahead. Yeah. 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 So basically the, the PLN will sort of like have, I mean, again, just to simplify things, right. Uh, we have the authority to sell power within this 50 gigawatts. Yeah. And then the other companies will have the authority to sell within this 15 gigawatts. But now comes the source of the power. PLN also needs the power to sort of sell the power. Yeah. So they need to produce the power. That's when actually the PLN moved towards the uh, private sector a lot more out of the 50 something gigawatts that they sell. I think somewhere about 20 gigawatts, they actually buy from independent power producer and the other 30, they actually produce themselves. So it used to be a lot larger. So back in what, 2010-ish, maybe PLN would produce 80% of their own powers. And nowadays it's more like 60% of the power that they produce themselves with the balance being independent power producers. So in this regard, in terms of the solar market, there's two sides of the market, I would say. One is the IPP side. So there's an opportunity for you to provide power to the state electricity grid company at the utility scale projects. And there's opportunity for you to sort of replace a B2B solar on, on the demand side, essentially. I guess for, yeah, I mean, just to sort of like make the story a bit shorter, the KLN has been sort of undergoing this really growth phase actually since 2010 to 2022. We actually installed 35 gigawatts of new electricity power within the past 10 years. Obviously, thanks to our previous presidents, they've been doing a good job. They call it the fast track program and there's like the, another set of program, but there was essentially a lot of programs to increase the power. But again, I think the, the problem is that those past 10 years, at a point in time, the most economic power source was still fossil fuel power source. So because of that, they actually push a lot of fossil fuel power source in the system. And because of that, they have actually a lot of new fossil fuel power electricity. It's coal, basically, yeah. Coal, coal fire, power plant, yeah. Coal is yeah. the number one thing. And uh, yeah. I mean, there used to be a lot of oil, but coal, yes, is actually the number one power. Yeah. So basically, because they have so much new power that's coming online, and in the past two years, because of the pandemic, right, they had this growth trajectory that electricity consumption was supposed to go up like 5, 10% every year. But unfortunately, because of the COVID pandemic, the growth didn't pan out to be as expected. Whereas actually they have so much of the supply. So they couldn't do utility scale solar because there was oversupply of power in a way, right? Uh, and on the other hand, on the side of se- selling electricity, they are so concerned right now to sort of actually be able to sell the power that they're producing. And any cap to them losing the revenues is considered as a matter of national security. So that's why they're actually clamping down on solar. Well, I mean, for any renewable or any new capacity for the matter, right? It's not just solar, yeah. On the utility scale. And the only thing that can really eat away on their revenues on the demand side is just purely solar. On the other hand, you could push for electric vehicle, which would actually create more demand for the electricity. And since the country is actually subsidizing the imported oil anyways, it makes perfect sense. So that's why the country is really, really pushing all the way into electric vehicle so that they can wean ourselves off the imported oil and plus that we have 
nickel resources, which is goes yeah. to battery. So it makes a lot of business sense. And electric vehicle consumption would reduce oil consumption and, and actually increase electricity consumption. So it, it works very well. And that's why they're pushing all the way for electric vehicle. Yeah. But they're sort of stopping halfway for renewable. So yeah. Okay. okay. It's a bit of background. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. So actually you mentioned that there is actually an access supply, if you will, Intel. And so that's why they would need to really find ways to sell this excess supply. Is that the right understanding? Okay. That's pretty much so. That's pretty much so. Okay. Although I would argue that there will be no excess supply in about two years time from now, right? Because electricity demand would still grow. So very soon they would sort of find themselves in a balance anyway, if they sort of stop. And also, I think there is also an element of unevenness, if that's an English word, meaning that there is an excess supply in certain area, but there is definitely a huge shortfalls in many other yeah. more remote areas in Indonesia, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. Like you said, I mean, that's also one of the things about Indonesia, right? We are, we're made of five main islands and each of them are not connected to each other in terms of the grid, right? So yeah. it's not like you can sort of pull the undersea cables from one side to the other. So you'll have that problem for sure. All in all, we are oversupplied, but there are actually certain patches of the countries that still undersupplied. So you're right. Okay. Okay. And so how does that dynamic play into your business model? Has this, you know, stunted your growth plan? Do you need to get a certain approval? Have you need to cut down or currently no issue your business? Well, I guess fortunately, right? And unfortunately as well for the world, but... Indonesia's solar penetration is so small. It's so small that even if I grow 2x next year, it probably wouldn't even make a dent to PLN's revenues. However, they sort of recognize this as a, as a potential threat, right? So, I mean, they, 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 there's a bit of a push and pull going on right now. The Ministry of Energy and Mineral Resources actually really want to push for renewable because they've really committed to the Paris Agreement that they're going to be 23% renewable by 2025. We still have twelve percent today, by the way. So it, yeah, there's no way they're gonna long way make to that get. target. Long way yeah. to go. And yeah, so basically they're they're trying to push hard. So they actually gave good regulations to sort of like allow us to roll out this rooftop solar because rooftop solars don't even you know take away the re the budget from the country, right? What it takes away is somewhat revenue from the country. But so that's sort of like on one side, there's a push there from the Ministry of Energy of and Mineral Resources. But on the other hand, PLN is sort of not wanting to execute it too well. So actually what happened is instead of carrying out exactly as per the plan, what PLN is doing is actually it's saying that, well, you can install the solar, but I'm not going to take any exported solar. So if you have excess power you, and you try to sort of sell the excess power to PLN, you'll never take it. But in terms of self-consumption, it's pretty much... No man's land. They cannot control it. If a customer, a factory, for example, decides to switch off more of their lights during the day, then they cannot control that, right? So there's no way they can control that portion. Okay, got it. Now let's talk more going back to the business that you have now. How many clients that you have installed in? And can you talk a little bit about the profile of your clients, who they are in terms of the sectors and in terms of the business? I think that would be interesting for us to understand the market there. Yeah. So I think in terms of the number of clients, we have installed maybe 100 something customers today and really range. I mean, I would say that 90% would be factories actually. Commercial, i.e. shopping malls and cold storages are actually a minority. Actually, the one behind me right now, it's that's MGM Bosco, which is actually a Saratoga portfolio company. They're the cold storage player. They have three factories, sorry, three cold storages. And we install it on them. We have Unicharm, we have BHL, we have Heinz. There will be probably more of the more well-known multinational companies. And on the Indonesian brands, Vian, Avian Paints, and Pipes, Cleo. Cleo is a, is a water bottling factory, the number two brand after uh, Aqua. Right? Those are a few of our more, more well-known local companies. Mm. How about those and education institutions? Are they also a good target of your company? I would say actually hospitals, yes. We, we actually just onboarded recently our first hospital in, in Surabaya. We'll, we'll, we'll be coming out soon. But I think in terms of schools, education, it's actually a bit harder, honestly. Because the, the, the nature of, of schools or I guess educational institutions for that matter, right, is they only operate mostly five days a week. So if let's say my solar is still producing power on Saturdays and Sundays, 
there will be nobody there to sort of consume the power. So again, thanks to the regulation environment right now, it sort of makes it very difficult. But once yeah. the regulatory environment is out of the way, it doesn't really matter. And anybody who has roof will be a potential client. That's a good point. Going back again to the 100 customers, are they mostly in Java, the main island of Indonesia, or do you also have significant number of clients outside Java for now? Okay. I think it is still mostly Java, actually more towards East Java. And su surprisingly enough, West, the capital of Indonesia is actually located in the West Java, right? But we actually, we are heavier on East Java. It seems like a lot of more factories there and a lot more people who care about the environment, I would say. But we also have Medan, for example. We have Asari, which is a, a joint venture between the FKS group and, the, and Malayan Mills, as well as Toyota Chusho group. We also have Makassar. We don't have one in Kalimantan yet as at this point in time, but we have Bali. So yeah. Okay. For those who just joined, just a reminder, I'm talking with Eka Himawan, the co-founder and managing director of Surya, a renewable energy startup in Indonesia. So let's talk about the next growth plan going forward. What is your next plan? Like, are you going, for instance, to diversify your products? Maybe not, but uh, how are you going to build more customers? Are you thinking of expanding to other countries, for instance? Yeah, I guess, to be honest with you, maybe other countries is probably the last on my list. Just because shopping in Indonesia is in the last country that probably is. <laughs> it's also like a meaningful way, right? Probably the last of the 20s, right? Despite what we are saying in the year. But... Anyway, for the uh, business development, I would say maybe uh, trying to find more ways to install more solar. Because I think the business model that we're trying to do is, we recognize that there is this issue with the PLN regulations and I guess the government's willingness to sort of put more solar on their system. But I believe that because we are such a democratic country, right? And the government would surely want to have their votes. Is if, if we have find a way to sort of get more people who are voting, actually care about the environment and actually demanding the renewable energy, then the government will have no choice but to serve, you know, come to that will. What we've been doing that so far with the commercial and industrial customers, we, we try to get on board like well-main consumer brands so that we can actually just use their uh, names as a megaphone and sort of like speak more to the public. But I think maybe another aspect of it is actually trying to tackle the residential side of things because I think the more and more the houses are actually installing, that's actually the, the common people, right? So the more common people are actually demanding it, then the more they will have to sort of give in and, and let well, customers actually have it, right? And they have it essentially. I, I mean, of course, the one that everybody's also looking for is the utility scale scholar. We're obviously also looking at that, but it's a bit hard for us to imagine that they will sign up to anything new in the next two years or so, just because they are sort of still dealing with this oversupply issue. So, uh, but, but I believe that, you know, if we advocate this correctly, I, I think we should be able to create some market. When you talk about the residential, I guess the, the, the idea is for you to approach with developer, right? As opposed to selling it on retail basis on one house per one house, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Correct. I think that's the only probably sustainable way on, and, and scalable way of doing it. Yeah. Have you started, because I think there is a very interesting idea, right? Have you started approaching the property developers? And if you have, what is the response so far? Like? Well, yes, we have been speaking to some of them. There have been a lot of interest, but I think they've been trying to sort of also figure out what's the business model going to be look like. Because for them, they're in the business of actually just selling the, the houses. And if they add this expense on top, you know, they basically have to justify the additional expense that they're putting in, right? So that's, uh, that's basically the challenge. Yeah. And as a background, because I look at prof investments in property also with IFC, as, as you, I'm, I'm sure you know, also the central bank actually has put some incentive in terms of the mortgage tax, I think for oh. the green house, the green buildings, right? Oh. The one oh. that has, yeah, actually if, if the property developers actually built a green building and green building, meaning that they have good efficient energy use of waterways. There is an incentive actually in terms of the, the tax when they take the mortgage. Unfortunately, I think it has not been fully implemented. And so I think there is no real push or real incentive also for the property developers to look at that. Because if there is a real incentive, then these property developers can actually install the solar panel and then they can also sell it to the customers. Hey, you get a lower tax actually if you buy this building. So. What I'm trying to say is here is that there is a potential incentive environment that can 
accelerate that, but I think it's still early also to that extent. Yeah. Now I want to talk about your fundraising, if right. To date, you have raised some funding from investors. I believe the latest one was Series A funding for a total of 33 million. Can you talk about your fundraising process from early on? I assume you did bootstrapping, did angel investors, but I think it would be interesting for the listeners, which I'm sure many of the listeners are interested in doing startups, probably in renewable. Talk to us about your fundraising challenge and process. So I guess in the early days, about 2018, G was not even a thing. So it was actually very challenging for us to sort of go to the market saying that we are an ESG company. We have to sell them on a vision of a real business. And I think it's fortunate for me at this, right? I had the experience of, of working with the venture capitals thanks to my experience in e-commerce, right? I, I did that for six years. So I, I really know the venture capital ecosystem. And there was actually my earlier investors. So the, the earliest investors are probably the most unlikely ESG champions of them all. The, the, the venture capitals in, in this part of the world is not sort of like sort of fully woken up to the whole ESG aspect yet. But I guess the business model makes sense and they could sort of understand it and they already know me. So they sort of said, well, look, yeah, what, what do you take this? So actually East Ventures, AC Ventures, as well as Tokopedia from the Goto Group is actually one of our first few backers. And I've been really grateful actually about, for them to entrust us with that capital. Then along the way, pandemic shaped in about 2020, there was actually a lot of uncertainty. So a lot of funding actually dried up, but I was also quite fortunate that a lot of the impact investors sort of like started coming into the picture. We raised some capital from Schneider, New Energy Nexus, as well as CSEF. So CSEF is actually funded by Microsoft and Bloomberg Funded Profits. But yeah, this is provide me with that investment that took me through the tough times of the COVID. And then about December of last year in 2021, that was when we hit the real round, I would say, of East Ventures and Saratoga. And then recently in October, we also had added on uh, Mitsui as well as Shreja Tassamastai's industrial estate in Indonesia uh, as our, you know, our release of shareholders. So in December 2021, that's when you raised your first Series A funding, yeah? Yes, correct. Okay. Also, before that, it was a pre-Series A funding at that time, yeah? Yes, pretty much. Okay. So it's interesting you mentioned basically your initial investors were your backers in your prior venture, right? And they they look at more of your track record and also the business model of Surya, but not so much of the ESG aspect of it. But I think along the way, some of the names you mentioned, the Snyder, Mitsui, and also the funds that you mentioned, they were not the investors that you knew before and they were not the Indonesian-focused investors also, right? Yeah, correct. Okay. Yeah. And was it the, especially for the later invest, was ESG or sustainability was one of the main reasons of they came to your company or was this more of a business model? Definitely a lot of that is also the business model, obviously, but there was a lot of ESG lens that also came with it. I think Mitsui specifically, but apparently, I mean, this was also news to me that Mitsui has been actually quite heavy investing in this kind of businesses across the world. So they've invested in companies just like us in the Middle East, Brazil, China, US, as well as India. And we are sort of like the sixth country that they're investing in. And so they really have a lot of learnings from the other countries they're sort of bringing to us. The Schneider Fund that we raised from was the Energy Access Fund, which is actually focusing purely on sustainability. And I mean, uh, also very surprising for me to, to learn is actually East Ventures and Saratoga. Just recently, I think East Ventures announced that they're going to be the only venture capital in Indonesia that's going to be focused on the UN SDGs. So they're very focused on the impact nowadays. And obviously we take a very heavy mark on the impact number seven, right? Clean energy. I think Saratoga, I mean, they, they have historically been well-known. I mean, for those of you who doesn't know that Saratoga is a private equity arm in Indonesia that's sort of the, created by the ex-founders of Astra International Group and also the owners of Tower Bersama and, and, and actually one of the largest coal fact mining in Indonesia <laughs> called Adaro. So I guess they have a lot of sins to atone, but they're actually moving really heavily towards the whole new energy space. I think if you look at the entire, the, the entire portfolio, Adaro is going green. They're literally building now nickel mines instead of coal mines, uh, still mining, but 
hopefully a bit greener. And, and, and I think another one of the portfolio company, Merdeka Copper, is also doing something related to batteries. Yeah. And don't know if you know this, but Saratoga is also the client of, of IFC, the company that I work for, and we invested in their first fund back in 2007. So we also, you know, kind of work together with Saratoga to implement the environmental, social, and governance principle, even early back in, in 2007 when IFC first invested. Okay. Yeah. But I think it's good to see the evolution of many of these funds. You mentioned Saratoga and his ventures towards this sustainability, right? Which, you know, as I'm sure you can also appreciate, this is kind of the, the whole trend globally also, right? Many of these investors or investments are gearing more towards this sustainability issue. So in terms of the fundraising, what's next for you? I mean, obviously you have just raised the last one in October 2021, but just give us a sense on how often are you planning to raise this fund? Is it going to be once per year, two years? Yeah, the business model, as you can imagine, of investing in the solar is actually quite capital intensive. So basically we raise funding whenever we have actually established enough projects. So our plan is every year we actually accumulate enough projects, we will actually go out and fundraise, you know, larger capital. That's, that's sort of like our modus operandi so far. Oh, I see. So it's more driven yeah. by the projects that you have, right? So would that be, do you think the next one year, is that a fair estimate that you may need to raise fund again? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think I would, I would say so. Yeah. Well, I mean, no, obviously we're trying to get as many projects as possible. Yeah. I think my target is every year we need to fundraise. Okay. Uh, if we're and getting what, enough projects as well. Yeah. Makes sense. And what is your kind of long-term plan? What do you see Surya in the next five, 10 years? Are you looking at this as a big, little bit of energy? Are you planning to do IPO? So share with us your vision in the next five to 10 years. Well, I guess maybe the number one thing that we're sort of looking for is how to actually catalyze this renewable energy development. So we're starting with, with solar, but what we believe is going to be a lot more sustainable in the long run is if we can help to make the, uh, what do you call it, like the country a lot more sustainable by actually liberalizing its, its energy markets. I think there's a really good signs that the national electricity company is actually moving towards that direction. And, and, and we, we feel that. There's this one idea that we really love is virtual power plants. So it's a concept that actually electricity can be traded, right? From, you know, one rooftop with too much, too much sunlight, sorry, too much rooftop and not much, not enough electricity consumption. Maybe there's another factory that's next door that is consuming a lot more electricity than they have for rooftop space. So uh, yeah, I mean, that virtual power plant is actually very real. I think a lot of countries actually implemented that. I think there'll be our main goal sort of shift the country towards that direction. Because I think once that happens, you can have a lot more penetration of renewable energy. Okay. Now I want to talk about, you know, as, as you know, this podcast is run by the students of climate change management and finance in Imperial College Business School. So as you can expect, many, if not all of us, the students are very interested in climate change, clean energy, sustainable. And in terms of the career, many of us are interested in the career in sustainable probably investment, consulting, but I think many of us also are interested of starting their own business. So given your background, given your career history so far, Eka, for people who are interested in startups, let's start with that, in building their own business, what would be the advice that you would give to them actually in terms of the, the challenges, the opportunities, the do's and do for startups? Eka? Yeah. So for starting in your own startups or, 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 yeah, or, yeah. For, probably, uh, yeah, for starting, for starting startups, yeah. yeah. Well, I guess maybe we've been sort of plugged into the news nowadays, right? It's, you know, it, it's, it, it sounds like it's a lot of doom and gloom for a lot of startups, but I actually feel that it's actually one of the best put times to sort of actually start a startup because Malaysians maybe are not so great, but they, you know, I guess there'll be a lot of, I guess, pool of capital that's still around because the, the venture capital has just raised a lot of money, right? And there'll be, I guess, unfortunately I have to say this, but there'll be pool talents as well, right? That's available from, you know, from, from the recent news that's been going on. I, I think it also creates opportunity where you can figure out what kind of business model would sort of make sense in this environment, because you don't have to really try to grow too much, which was sort of like the 
I guess the, the, the problem that we have in the ESC years, right? I think we, everybody was just sort of like chasing after growth, 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 but not so much on business model and profitability and, and how we're going to make money at the end of the day. Because I think we all know now that businesses have to make money, right? So I, I would say that the number one advice for people who want to do startup is a focus on the business model as well as how you're going to be making money in one point in time, not just growth. That's very interesting. And I think that's what would sell to the investors, right? And what would be your advice for people who are, you know, like the students of this program who are clearly interested to build their career in sustainability? And it can be in investments, consulting. Based on your experience so far in the sustainability field, what kind of career advice to the people who are interested in building their career in the sustainability field? I would say do it. <laughs> that's, that, yeah, I mean, I think as Larry Fink, the CEO of Black Rock has we also mentioned, right, it's this ESG and climate change, climate crisis in a way, right, it's, it's the opportunity of our lifetime. And uh, I mean, yes, it is a great crisis. Yes, it is going to impact a lot of lives, but it's also a very big business opportunity, I would say. So, I mean, if we can make money at the same time as impacting the world for the better, I, I think more people should be doing it. And I think it's, it's sort of like graduated from this. I think there was a period of time where, you know, people were trying to do sustainability as sort of like seen as tree huggers, right? But now it's, it's sort of like a mainstream. So yeah, we'll definitely love to see more people doing this and impacting more environment. And I think you have proven it yourself, right? I think just in the short span of time, 2018, you mentioned at that time, even the ESG was not kind of focus of many of the investors, but within the span of only four years, you have more interest from the investors who are looking for sustainable investments also, right? Yeah, very yeah. much so. Yeah. Okay, Mawan, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. And, you know, really, we have many great insights from this conversation. Thank you very much, Eka. Yeah, thank you very much, Joel. Thanks for having me around. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this podcast. A little bit fun trivia. The name of the company, Surya, spelled as X-U-R-Y-A, is actually a wordplay from Surya, spelled as S-U-R-Y-A. Both words are pronounced the same, but Surya, the word which is started with the letter S, in Indonesian language literally means Sark. So, there you go. As always, we would love to hear your feedback or your suggestion on our podcast episodes. Please reach out to any of the four hosts, Claudia, Moritz, Desi, or me, Andreas. Thanks again and until next time.